Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm going to read from Psalm 138. Please rise. Psalm 138. I will give thee thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to thee before the gods. I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name. On the day I called, thou didst answer me. Thou didst make me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to thee, O Lord, when they have heard the words of thy mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou wilt stretch forth thy hand against the wrath of my enemies, and thy right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Thy loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of thy hands. To start this morning by thanking Micah and Steve for filling in in my absence. And then I also want to thank Tom for several things. Not only was he prepared to be standing here this morning, I didn't know if I'd be standing here this morning until this morning. And so Tom was prepared. But when I called him yesterday and said, there's an outside chance that I'm actually going to show up, he said, well, I feel like the relief pitcher. So if, if you can come in and do it, come in and do it. And I'll just hold my message until next time you fall down. And so Tom took very good care of me these past two weeks. 
carried me off to the doctor, got me groceries, did a tremendous amount of things for me, so much so, in fact, that at one point Micah said, do you need anything? And I said, no, Tom's gotten me everything I need. And so he started listing things that perhaps he could get for me. And with each thing he listed, I said, no, Tom's got that. Then Micah realized, oh, wait, I've thought of something no one's probably thought of. And he said, do you need cat food? And I said, no, Tom got that. And he said, Tom's not leaving any jewels behind for anybody else. So I appreciate Tom very much. I personally really enjoyed both Steve and Micah's messages this week. If that's what it took, if I had to get ill in order for these guys to step up to that level, then it was worth it. And uh, this morning I likened myself to a weeble. If any of you remember weebles, (laughs) weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. That's me this morning. I'm kind of wobbly, but I'm upright. If I fall down, just prop me back up and we'll get through it. Turn to the book of Colossians. We had been doing a study in the book of Ephesians and Colossians because they are sister epistles, both written by Paul at the same time from Rome, both carried by Tychicus to the respective cities that they were addressed to. We got all the way through the book of Ephesians, and this morning we are going to begin the book of Colossians. Now you'll see elements of very similar Pauline theology in the book of Colossians. You'll see things that are very similar to what he taught in the book of Ephesians. However, the book of Colossians also has more personal information because this particular epistle, though shorter than the Ephesians epistle, was not meant to be an encyclical the way that the Ephesian letter was meant to be. Paul is addressing things that were actually going on there in Colossae because Epiphas had come to him and told him what was going on in the church. And so Paul is writing to that church even though he'd never been there. In fact, you'll see Paul even say there are churches that have never seen my face. And Colossae is one of them that had never seen Paul in the flesh and yet... He felt that it was necessary, knowing what was going on there, he felt that it was necessary to write to them and correct their theology, thinking, and behavior. So this letter was written around 62 AD. And as I mentioned, it was delivered by Tychicus around the same time that he delivered the letter to the Ephesians. Oftentimes in commentaries when comparing the Ephesians letter and the Colossians letter, they will say the Ephesians letter is about the church and the Colossian letter is about Christ. I think that's a fair assessment because right here in the very first chapter, Paul is just going to unload a very high Christology. He is going to explain 
who Christ is and how Christ is superior to everyone and everything because he is the creator of all things. All things exist by him and through him and for him. That is the Pauline Christology that he's going to come barrel housing in with right away. Right after he gets done saying hello, right after the greetings, he goes right for the Christology. And that's a really important element of this letter, and we'll tell you why in a few moments. Colossae, let's talk about the city. It was an ancient city of the Roman province of Phrygia in Asia Minor, which means that's current Turkey, just north of Jerusalem. It was located 15 kilometers southeast of Laodicea, a church that is mentioned in the book of Revelation. They run along a road that goes through the Lycus Valley near the Lycus River at the foot of Mount Cadmus, which was the highest mountain in Turkey's western Aegean region. All I want you to remember from all of that is not the geography, but that Laodicea and Colossae are very close to each other. And when we get to the seven letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation, oh yeah, have I mentioned there is a reasonably good chance that the next book we're going to go through is the book of Revelation. I haven't done that in 20 years, and I see a lot of people nodding. Yes. Let me tell you why Revelation. Roughly 15, 16 months ago, previous to March 2020, previous to COVID, when you heard somebody say things like, you know, you're not going to be able to buy or sell or trade unless you take the mark, that seemed kind of difficult to conceive of because you would think, no, no, human beings are not going to stand for that. Human beings are not going to say, what, I can't buy, sell, or trade unless I'm willing to conform? Well, that can't be. And then COVID happened. And suddenly, the idea that people aren't going to be able to buy, sell, or trade unless they conform is a very imaginable idea. Because there's been an incredible amount of conformity forced on everybody in the whole wide world as a result of COVID. And so I thought, wow, that's really interesting that one of the key elements of the book of Revelation that seemed kind of hard to imagine even two years ago now is so imaginable that it seems like time to go back and read that letter again. After all, John says that there is a blessing given to the people who read it. So I don't know how long it'll take to go through Revelation because there's a whole lot of extra information we're going to have to study along the way, but that's my plan, is to then go to the book of Revelation after the book of Colossians. Agreed? Yes. Okay. Colossae is near Laodicea. There is a third city in the valley, in the Lycus Valley right there by them. That valley contains both Colossae and Laodicea and a city known as Hierapolis. Those three cities each had churches in them, which were established by this fellow, Epaphras. Epaphras then went to Rome in order to visit with Paul. 
and told Paul about the relative health and the relative problems of the churches that he had founded in the Lycus Valley. And that's the reason that the book of Colossians exists, because Colossae was a major city, a city that had a background of both Jews and Gentiles living in it, and a large degree of Greek philosophy, a tremendous amount of arguments and philosophies between the Jews and the Gentiles, and Greek philosophy, and a very deep encroachment of angelology. In fact, the city of Colossae was known for its angel cult. That's one of the reasons that you're going to read some of the things that we're about to see in the book of Colossians. Michael was considered the protecting saint of the city, and it said that he once appeared to the people saving the city during the time of a flood. And it was this belief in angels that Paul is actually going to address in chapter 2. If you didn't know that, if you didn't know that background, that there was an angel worship cult in Colossae, it would seem very odd that Paul just suddenly addressed the topic. So you need to know that background. Do me a favor, if you would, Tom. Turn real quickly to Colossians 4, 12 and 13. I'll have you read that in just a moment. Epaphras, as I said, was with Paul, and he gave Paul a report about the health of the churches in Laodicea, in Hierapolis, in Colossae. In fact, in the very first chapter, if you would, look at chapter 1, verse 7, verses 7 and 8, Paul basically says how it is that even though he hasn't ever been to Colossae, he knows what's going on in Colossae. He writes, just as you learned it from Epaphras, that's just as you learned the faith of Christ, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love for the Spirit. So even though Paul hadn't been to Colossae, Nevertheless, he knew what was going on at Colossae because the man who founded the church at Colossae went to Paul and said, this is what's happening in the church at Colossae. And that inspired Paul to say, where's my pen? Get me something to write on. I have got to write to these people. Tom, read for us from Colossians 4, verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ greets you, always struggling on your behalf and in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Paul said that Epaphras, the one who founded your church, he's with me now. And that's how I know these things. And because he's with me, he sends greetings to you. So those two passages out of chapter 1 and chapter 4 tell us everything we need to know background-wise about how it is that Paul knows what's going on in Colossae. Are you familiar with the very short New Testament epistle known as Philemon? Well, Philemon lived in the city of Colossae. And in fact, the third letter that Tychicus carried with him 
was the letter Philemon. And in fact, when Tychicus came to Colossae, he actually carried the letter we know as Philemon to Philemon and brought Onesimus, the slave, with him. Onesimus was one of the people who traveled with Tychicus. You read that in Colossians 4, 7 to 9. Would you read that for us, Steve? I should have given you a heads up or more warning. Yes, indeed. Colossians 4, 7 to 9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. And with him, Onesimus. And it's not insignificant that Paul takes the time to mention Onesimus, because that takes us back to the letter of Philemon. So that's how these books all interconnect. I want you to understand the history, the background, and the connection between these various epistles. One of the leading problems that Paul is going to address in this letter was the problem of Gnosticism that had broken out there in Colossae. Are you familiar with Gnosticism? Do you know what that is? Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which means knowing, oftentimes experiential knowing. Gnosticism starts with the a priori position, the conclusion that everything fleshly, everything physical, is inherently evil. It is only thought that is good among human beings. The only things that human beings can do that are genuinely good are spiritual things and taking thought. Hence the word gnosis, Gnosticism, knowing things. And so Paul is going to address that by talking about epinosis, which means a full knowing, a full understanding, a full comprehension. And that would have made the Gnostics sit up and say, well, how do I get that? How do I get full understanding? How do I get full knowing? There were two ways that the Gnostics dealt with their own philosophical Gnosticism. One way was to go the way of the Epicurean. And say, well, since all flesh is evil anyway, let's just follow the evil because it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. So they would indulge in the evil, indulge in their fleshliness. And that was the hedonism that was part of Gnosticism, if you don't mind all these big words. The other way was the Stoic approach. People would say, well, all flesh is bad. Therefore, we can't engage in the flesh in any way. And oftentimes, those Gnostics would become hermits and just isolate themselves from everybody else and all society and starve themselves because they believed that all flesh was just inherently evil and they wanted nothing to do with it. The thing that you need to hold on to, that you need to remember, is that they believed that thought was the ultimate good, knowledge was the ultimate good. And so when Paul uses the word epinosis, which is a full acknowledgement of truth, that was a reaction to the Gnostics who believed that thoughtfulness was the only goodness. 
within human beings okay so so far I've told you that there in Colossae there's Gnosticism running rampant there's angel worship running rampant there's Greek philosophy running rampant there's arguments between the Jews and the Gentiles that's running rampant religious arguments about the law about freedom in Christ all of that is going on and Paul is going to address all that in four short chapters and the way that he does it is fascinating if you pay attention to how Paul actually addresses his defense the way that he makes his apologetic it is so fascinating and instructive what he does is instead of addressing each of those individual problems and then pointing out the errors that are inherent in each of those problems instead he goes right for it's all Christ Christ is the answer to everything you're worshiping angels Christ is better than angels you think the flesh is no good Christ was in the flesh and he was good you're arguing about the law or the lack of law it's Christ Christ is the answer Christ is your salvation it's not the law regardless of what the argument was he goes straight for the answer is Christ and that is a great way to do your apologetic for 20 years or better I've stood here saying that what we do here at GCA is that we just lay down straight sticks and the reason that I started using that phrase was because people would ask me about various religious movements religious ideas religious philosophies different preachers different denominations different groups that came up and were in error and they would say to me are you going to address that are you going to talk about that will you point out how that's wrong and why that's wrong and really if I were to start doing that if I was to start going down that road of addressing every error that is out there in the world I'd never get around to telling you the truth of the Bible because I could spend the rest of my life just telling you the stuff that's wrong but if I tell you what is genuinely true if you're familiar with what the Bible says and you know the truth of the Bible that's like being able to have a straight stick in your hand and I don't have to go around pointing at every other stick and saying see that that's a crooked stick you've got your straight stick just compare them compare your straight stick to the crooked stick and it'll be obvious that that's a crooked stick that's exactly what Paul is doing Paul lays out his very high Christology right away and then having laid out how Christ is all Christ is the answer to all the questions Christ is the primary central character the centricity of all Christianity once you've got that you've got your straight stick Christ what did he say because he's the answer he's all knowledge he's perfect knowledge he's the perfect Savior who saves perfectly well that's the approach that Paul takes and that's why it's been the approach that we have taken for lo these 20 years because I think that's the best way to do your defense of Christianity the best way to enter into apologetics is to start with Christ all right with all of that introduction out of the way we're going to start reading Colossians chapter 1 
verse 1, which begins with Paul's typical greeting. He starts by saying, Paul, and then he identifies his office, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It is necessary for Paul to point out that he is an apostle by the will of God because he doesn't have the same marks of an apostle that the original 12 apostles had. Originally, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to be with him for the three and a half years of his ministry. Then you had to have seen his death and then seen him (coughs) risen after his death. Only then, with all of that evidence in front of you, only then could you be a sent one of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't have any of that. He wasn't one of the apostles while Jesus was here on the planet during the time of his ministry. Paul was killing Christians after the resurrection. And so for Paul to now say, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, naturally the apostles and people who knew what true apostleship was would say, wait a minute, how can you, a Christian killer, how can you consider yourself an apostle? And so he says, I am an apostle by the will of God. I didn't do this. I didn't make this up. I didn't choose to be an apostle. I was stopped on the road of Damascus. I fell down. I saw Christ resurrected. He put me into the ministry. He sent me to the churches of the Gentiles. Therefore, I am an apostle because of God's will. I like the fact that Paul does not take it on himself to say, dig me. I'm important. I'm an apostle. I know some stuff. Listen to me. He doesn't start there. He starts at, I'm nothing. Christ is everything, and I am a bond slave of the Christ who saved me. That's the only way that Paul could say he was a sent one of Jesus Christ. And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and to the faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Every time I see that phrase, grace and peace, a phrase that Paul uses very, very frequently, I have to point out that in order for you to have peace with God, which is the most important peace that there is, the only way that there is a stopping of the againstness that is innate between you and God, the only way that God is going to not judge you and you're going to stand before him in peace is if God is gracious to you. So first you have to have grace and then you get the peace. And Paul never confuses those. He always puts it as grace and peace from God our Father. Specifically to specific people. And this is important to remember. Paul is not writing to the whole wide world. Paul is writing to a specific group. If you are not the hagios, if you are not the set apart by God, if you are not holy saints of God, if you are not faithful in Christ Jesus, then he's not writing to you. The qualification for these words to apply to you the way that they applied to the church at Colossae is that you are a saint 
that you are called by Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you're going to have grace from God. That's the only way that you're going to receive peace from God. And if, in fact, that is who you are, then Paul can say, and I give thanks for you. And who does he thank? I find it interesting that Paul does not say, thank you for choosing Jesus. I thank you so much for making him your Lord and Savior. We're trying desperately to increase our numbers. And because we're doing that and you chose to be part of the group, thank you for signing on the dotted line. He doesn't say any of that. Recognizing them as the saints and the faithful in Christ, he says, I give thanks to God for you. The only reason you exist, the only reason that you are the faithful to Christ Jesus. The only reason that you are the saints of the ever-living God is because God himself chose you, called you to himself, put his spirit inside you, is preserving you, has prepared a home for you in eternity, wrote your name down before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. It is God who did every element of saving you. Therefore, I'm glad you exist. I'm glad you're the saints. I'm glad you're the holy. I'm glad you're the separate, the hagios. I'm glad that you're faithful to Jesus Christ, but I don't thank you for it. I thank God for it. Paul says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Notice how consistent that is. All the New Testament authors and Jesus himself. When he was asked, what is the great commandment? And the Pharisees expected him to come up with one of the ten. He actually goes off into a separate section of Deuteronomy and says, this is the first and the great commandment that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Faithfulness to God demonstrated by love for the saints. Love for your brethren as a result of love of God. Paul says the exact same thing here. It's so consistent in the Bible that he thanks God for their faithfulness since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We've been praying for you and thanking God for you, but not only did we hear about your faith in Christ Jesus, we also heard about the love which you have for all the saints. The two are inextricably tied together. You can't separate the two. I, I was introduced to the doctrines of grace Reformed theology, if you prefer that nickname. I was introduced to it in a church that can only be described as the frozen chosen. They were pretty good on doctrine. They were pretty good in having all of their theological ducks in a row. And the pastor had the rare talent of being able to start from any verse in the Bible, anywhere, Old or New Testament, he could start from any single verse in the Bible and preach the exact same message. It was a rare talent. <laughs> and it always got back to God's sovereignty and God's election and God's foreknowledge. And 
And at some point, I remember thinking, okay, I got that. I, I think the Bible says something else, too. Anyway, the point was, there was a whole lot of doctrine. There was a whole lot of head knowledge. There was no genuine love for the saints. And because of the lacking of genuine love for the saints, oftentimes I saw the truth of biblical doctrine used as a club to beat people with. Which is why we're told to speak the truth in love. There has to be that combination of truth and love. If you just have love with no truth, then you just get that kind of ooey-gooey religion that just kind of marshmallow and doesn't really know what it believes. There has to be truth. There has to be doctrine. You know, we're very strong on doctrine here at GCA. But there also has to be genuine love. Love for the saints. Love for each other sacrificial love and caring for one another because that is one of the few genuine proofs that the doctrine has actually landed in your heart and is producing fruit. If you don't have that fruit of love for the saints emanating from you, then I don't believe you understand the truth yet. So Paul says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Both elements are there. That's why Paul is thanking God for them. Because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, the euangelion the good news, the story of Jesus Christ and everything he accomplished. And I can't help but think that Paul is here taking his first little dig at the Gnostics because he just called the gospel the word of truth. You want to know the truth? If you know all the stuff there is to know and you don't know about Jesus Christ, Paul says, you still don't know the truth. That's right. This is still a continuation of the same sentence. In a moment, we'll put the whole sentence together after, after we've torn it apart a bit. The gospel, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day that you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So what Paul has said there is the gospel, the word of truth has come to you because Epaphras has brought it to you. You've heard the gospel because of my fellow workman who has brought the truth of Jesus Christ to you. And then that gospel, that good news of Jesus Christ by the power of God has done a good work in you the same way that it does everywhere that it's preached. In the whole world, whether among the Jews or whether among the Gentiles, Paul says wherever that word is preached, it accomplishes what it was sent there to accomplish. It actually produces good fruit, good works. <clears throat> so in verse 7, he says, just as you have learned it, as you have learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. 
In other words, since I couldn't be there, Epaphras was there, and he carried to you the same theology, the same doctrine, the same gospel that I preach, you heard it through Epaphras. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Period. Okay, that's a really important period because all of what I just read to you is one really long sentence. My eighth grade English teacher would have had a fit. That is a run-on sentence. So now that we've taken it apart a little bit, let's read it from verse 3 all the way to verse 8. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing so in you also since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Verse 9. For this reason also, since the day that we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's no question at that point that Paul has taken a shot at the Gnostics because he has just defined what genuine spiritual truth is. For this reason, from the day that we heard about your faith and about your love for the saints, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So where does the knowledge of God's will come from? Does it come from your cleverness, you working hard enough, you studying hard enough, putting enough hours in? Does it come from your wisdom, your ability as a human being? Is that where genuine spiritual understanding comes from? No, Paul just shot that idea down, shot all the Gnostics down with it, and said that genuine wisdom, spiritual wisdom, is a gift that God gives so that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There is no question, to my mind, that he is gunning right for the Gnostic ideas there and saying that only God can give you genuine spiritual wisdom. Without the God-given gift of wisdom, human wisdom is of no consequence. For this reason also, since the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that once you are full of spiritual wisdom and understanding of the will of God, once you understand that, so that you can then walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's the same thing he told the Ephesians. 
walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling that has been placed on your life. Paul never separates your spiritual knowledge and understanding of the will of God, the doctrine of the will of God, the understanding of who Christ is and what he did for you. Paul never separates that from also then walk like it. If you are the saints, if you are the hagios, if you are the separated by God, then it ought to show. You ought to behave like it. You ought to walk through this sin-soaked world in a way that people could look at you and see that there is something different about you. Which is the very reason why Peter would say that you need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. And to do so with gentleness and reverence. To do it with kindness, but the only way that people are going to know that there is something different about you is if you are acting, if you are behaving, if you are living differently than the world. Then they're going to inquire. Then they're going to ask, what is it about you? What is it about this hope that you have? And where did you get that hope? And where can I get that hope? And that Paul's solution is, like always, Christ. The answer is always Christ. That's the best defense. By the way, Paul is still just kind of saying hi. <laughs> he could have just said that and made it a much shorter epistle. This is all still part of his introduction. For this reason, also since the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with all knowledge be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And that's one of the places where Paul uses this word that he also used in verse 9, this epinosis word. It's spelling out his solution to the Gnostic heresy. He describes this epinosis, this full acknowledgement, this full understanding, and says it has to be an understanding of the wisdom of God that is then demonstrated by the way that you walk through this life, the way that you behave, then by bearing every good work and increasing in those good works, then you're going to demonstrate that you have a genuine epinosis of God. And that is very different than just the mere experiential knowledge that the Gnostics advanced as being the only genuine good among human beings. Instead, Paul is saying there is a genuine good, a genuine spiritual good, a genuine intellectual good. There is a genuine thinking good, but it's not the thinking that you're thinking of. It's not the think that you think. It's not the thinking you're thinking about right now. You don't have the ability to think the real genuine truth. You don't have the ability to understand the wisdom of God. You don't have the ability to fully comprehend what God has said. He has to give you that ability. He has to put that spiritual wisdom inside you. And that's the only genuine, true knowledge. Okay, well, that's a shot directly at the Gnostics. And now I'm in the middle of a sentence again. I keep starting at the beginning of this sentence. For this reason also, since the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, the epinosis 
full acknowledgement of the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Jam-packed sentence. Let's start with, there is a qualification in order for you to inherit what God has intended for you. There is a qualification. You're just not the one who does the qualifying work. Christ has already qualified you, so we give thanks to the Father because he has qualified us in order to make us share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ along with all the saints of light. Wow, that's really good news, that God has not only prepared our inheritance, but then he made sure we were qualified to take part in the inheritance by sending his son to be a perfect sacrifice for all our sin, for all of our rebellion against God, so that we could stand before God, holy, righteous, unblemished, spotless, and through that qualification work that Christ himself did, we are going to become joint heirs with Jesus Christ in everything that God the Father has eternally determined to give Christ for his glory forever. And we get to be part of that. My voice just went up two octaves. I mean, we, we get to be part of that. Do you understand why we sing Amazing Grace every once in a while? Because that kind of grace, that kind of kindness from God is astounding. Also, Paul prayed that we would be strengthened, but not strengthened by our own strength. If you know anything about your fleshly body, and boy, I got a lesson on human frailty this last two weeks, yet again, and no amount of willpower could change what happened to me. And so it can't be by my power. It can't be by my frail body. It can't be by my sick and dying body and will that I strengthen myself to persevere through this lifetime. And so Paul says that not only does he pray that God would give you wisdom and genuine understanding of his own will, but then you would also be strengthened with the power that is according to his glorious might. That is in contrast with your very feeble might or your very feeble lack of might. Your weakness is only made strong through the strength of Christ. Paul himself knew this. This is why Paul said that he would rather glory in his infirmities because what time he was weak, then Christ is strong. And so it is the strength of Christ, it is the strength of God that Paul prays for the saints at Colossae, for the saints, the faithful, the hagios of God strengthened with all power 
according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness how often in the Bible do we read stand having done all therefore stand and don't be moved that's what Paul's talking about in saying be steadfast stand firmly on what it is you know because this world is going to do its best to undermine what you believe this world is going to do its best to tell you the Bible is a crutch this world is going to do its best to tell you that whole Christianity thing and God is just a fairy tale that weak people like you probably need but you know not us smart ones we don't need that so Paul says you're going to need to stand you're going to need to withstand you're going to need to plant your feet and stand firm unmovable in these things that you know for sure why do you know them because God taught them to you God gave you the wisdom and the ability to know these things and God gives you the strength to stand so it's all God it's all God who accomplishes these things strengthened with might according to his glorious might strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously it's hard to be happy it's hard to have genuine joy when you're going through the tough times and yet Paul would say that through Jesus Christ we have a peace that passes understanding you do understand don't you that there is a big difference between joy and happiness the Bible does not promise you happiness happiness has as part of the word the word hap just like happenstance just like happening the stuff that happens to you in this life your happiness is dependent on what happens and if things happen that are bad you're not very happy about it but you could be joyful in the midst of it if you know that there is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but will with the temptation provide a way of escape in other words when you're in the midst of your difficulty in the midst of your hardship look to God knowing that he is going to deliver you through it he's going to provide the way of escape and that will give you comfort that will give you peace and that will give you the ability to joyously praise God even in the midst of your worst moments because the joy that comes from Jesus Christ is not dependent on what's happening you got it so Paul could say take your stand consider for a moment that Paul is writing this from prison we don't know at this point whether Paul is under his house arrest I mean after all he does have people coming to visit him and he is sending out epistles so this is probably during the house arrest period but he's been in chains and he's been in prisons he's been in dungeons and yet despite going through all that for the cause of Christ he could write and be joyous in the midst of that kind of pain he could write yeah come join us 
Yeah, come join Christ. It won't go better for you. It won't go easier for you. But you will find a deep-seated satisfaction and joy and peace that passes understanding because it is based in genuine spiritual wisdom that is a gift given to you that absolutely surpasses all the fleshly happenstance of this world. All right, so that whole sentence goes like this, starting at verse 9. For this reason also, since the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the end of his greeting. And then he launches directly into his Christology, which is really the basis for the whole rest of the letter. So you have to have this groundwork in order to understand the theology that comes after it. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. A couple very important things you need to know there. First, the son has a kingdom. He is the king who is ruling over his subjects. And we are transferred into his kingdom, which means we didn't do it. We didn't sign up for it. We didn't race into it. Somebody else transferred us to it. Why did we need to be transferred? Because by nature, exactly like Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, by nature, we are children of wrath, just like the others. He has delivered us from where? From the domain of darkness. Notice that Paul does not leave any neutral territory. There's no gray area. You're either a child of light or a child of darkness. You're a child of the woman or you're a child of Satan. There's no in-between. You are one or the other. And by nature, when we are born, that is the Pauline notion of our complete depravity, that we live in the domain of darkness. If you're in a dark room and you're blind... You have no hope of figuring things out. You're incapable of genuine vision or sight or understanding of practically anything. If there's no outward stimulus, because you're in a dark room, and you're blind, there's just no way that you're going to gain any kind of understanding of anything important. And that's the state in which God found you in the domain of darkness, incapable of helping yourself. So then he transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. You didn't do it. 
He delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In whom? In the Son? We have redemption. And then he defines what kind of redemption he's talking about. The forgiveness of sins. Our sins are paid for and we are forgiven because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is how, that is the means, that is the method by which God transferred us from our darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Look at verse 15. Because he is the image of the invisible God. We have to stop there. That is the word icon in Greek. It moved into the English language pretty much unchanged, even though if you were to write the Greek word in English letters, it would be E-I-K-O-N. In English, we just write it I-C-O-N. It's the same word, icon. But the Greek meaning of the word icon necessitates that there is a prototype. An icon is a perfect representation, a perfect reflection of something else. And so when Paul uses the word icon, he is also demonstrating that there is also the real thing that Christ is a representation of. In other words, for the Gnostics out there, for the folks out there who say, well, where is your God? We've never seen your God. We've never witnessed your God by ourselves. The Bible says that he is the invisible God. And yet there is Jesus Christ. And by calling Jesus Christ the icon of the invisible God, Paul is saying God is real based on the fact that Christ is real. And we have seen Christ. And we have touched him with our own hands. And we know that he is flesh and blood and not just a phantom, not just a ghost. And therefore, since he does exist, God must exist because he is the icon, the perfect representation of the invisible God. See how brilliant that sentence is? But not only that, he, Christ, is the prototokos, the firstborn of all creation. What that means is, when creation happened, Christ was already. It's not implying that Christ was at some point generated, that he was ever made. Instead, this is first in terms of position. He is the high God. He is the creator God. He is the God who made heaven and earth. That designation throughout the Old Testament is a designation that God uses for himself over and over. I am the God who made heaven and earth. Any thoroughgoing Jew who knew his scripture would know that Yahweh is the God who made heaven and earth. And here is Paul saying, and before God made the heaven and earth, the icon was. He was right there and part of it. He was the speaking agency through which God said, let there be light. He is the perfect demonstration of God. So Paul is not using these words by accident. They're very specific. And with each of these words, he is demonstrating that Christ is higher and better, more perfect, more complete, better knowledge than anything that any human, any philosophy, any Gnosticism, any angelology could possibly offer you. It's Christ. It's all Christ. 
I'm just going to read the rest of this chapter so that we can just hear the Christology. I will attempt not to comment because the clock is working against me. But at the moment, I sort of feel good, and I don't want that to stop. And so even if you have somewhere to be, you can all go home. And if you come back later today, I'll be standing here reading this. Never. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether there are things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. That's where we will pick up next week. We got to the very high Christology at the end of today, next week we will start there because you really need to understand Paul's very, very high representation of who Christ is, what Christ has accomplished, and if, in fact, that is all true, that is the best knowledge a human being can have. Amen. And it doesn't matter about angels because angels do obeisance to Christ. And it doesn't matter about your electric bill because your electric bill does obeisance to Christ. And it doesn't matter about your sickness or your body because your sickness and your body is obedient to Christ. And whatever the happenstance of your life is, it only happens in obedience to what Christ has designated for you. There is nothing that gets to you that didn't first pass through nail-scarred hands. There's nothing about this human life, this earthly life. There's nothing that is not under the jurisdiction of Christ who is Lord over all. 
And once you know that, you can genuinely get down on your face in front of him and worship him aright because you understand that he is indeed the all and the in all, and you are nothing but a recipient of astounding, amazing grace. Amen. Amen. I preached myself happy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. <laughs>